You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 80 with Dr. Anita Johnston. Today's conversation is about storytelling and metaphors. Now, I know we had a conversation previously on metaphors, and I think this one takes it to a whole new level. So we talk about storytelling and the use of metaphors in healing your relationship with food. We talk about why it's so transformative, the neuroscience behind it, the psychology behind it, and specific stories and metaphors that can really, really be helpful to you today. I don't know about you, but I love stories. I love reading. I don't necessarily love when someone tells me a story, but I love the idea of stories. And I'm usually not the one to sit on the edge of my seat when there's a story being told, but I found myself many times during this conversation waiting, waiting to hear what's next, feeling like a kid. And then what? And then what? And then what? And I know that you'll be the same. So just a little bit about Dr. Johnston. She is a depth psychologist, certified eating disorder specialist, and the author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationships with Food Through Myths, Metaphors, and Storytelling. That has been published in seven languages. She's also the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, which is an online resource with an interactive and self-study courses for women around the world. She is a pioneer in the field of eating psychology for over 35 years. Currently the founder and executive clinical director at iPono Hawaii, which has a residential eating disorder treatment program on Maui. Cool, right? Hawaii. If you've heard of Dr. Johnston before, you know that she is the storytelling guru. And if you haven't, after today, you will definitely know that. All right, let's jump right in. Thank you so much, Anita, for joining me. I am so excited for this and I'm excited for our conversation. I love, love, love this topic. I was thinking about, we were talking about storytelling and metaphors before, and I was thinking about the idea of stories. I love, love a good story. And even if people don't necessarily love reading or stories per se, everybody loves a good story. It's almost like why marketing or journalism works because we love a good story, even if we don't say it's what draws us in is the story. So I guess even just like talking a bit about why do we like stories and what do stories do? What is it about a story that's so compelling that we're so interested in it? Well, I think we're creatures of story, right? Our brains have developed over time as story listeners and storytellers. So if you think about it, it's like everything is conceptualized in terms of story. And um, way before people could read or write, there was storytelling. So if you think in terms of our evolution, we can't help ourselves. (laughs) We do like story. But I do think there's a difference between story and narrative. So Mm. 
narrative is okay, this happened, this happened, this happened, blah, 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 blah. Story pulls us in in a different way. I think it engages different parts of our psyche. There's typically some kind of dilemma that mirrors dilemmas we have in everyday life. There's usually an emotional component, whether that's horror or surprise, or it's an interactive experience. You are a story listener as well as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about even, ugh, I make so much fun of this, but just sort of like a typical movie is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds girl back and just sort of like, hooray, end of story. But if you think about it, it's the idea of there's building this life and then there's a dilemma or there's something going on. And then there's a lot of emotion and then there's a resolution that is almost inherently compelling. It's so interesting. Yeah. And my background is Jungian. And so the Jungian psychologists, they understood this, that in, especially in the old fairy tales, just like in our dreams, the different characters can represent different aspects of our psyche. And so they get activated. And when there's a conflict that gets resolved in the story, we feel that resolution within ourselves as well. So I think we're all hungry for story in that regard, which is why as children, we want to hear the same story over and Mm -hmm. over. (laughs) It's like, oh no, you want to hear that story again? And it's because something is happening internally that I think is really powerful and I think healing. Yeah. Well, so maybe because you're alluding to it now, what is more of the psychology behind storytelling? What actually happens? And I guess maybe the way that we identify with the resolution, why does it work? Yeah. I'm fascinated by this as well. I'm always looking at it. And I think parcel of it is that the language of story is typically metaphor. Mm. And so What Carl Jung said is that the way metaphors affect the psyche, they impact us on multiple levels. So there's the mental level where kind of following along. Then there's the emotional level where often there's an emotion embedded in it. And then there's the imaginative level. According to him, it's at the imaginative level that transforming power of story resides in the metaphor. But what I think is most interesting, given the work that I do, is what he says is simultaneous effect on these three levels that happens all at once allows for change to be more immediate. So it can happen like that. Just for clarification, what's the imaginative part? What does that entail? Well, if I say elephant pulling a pink string, you're using the power of your mind's eye to create a picture for yourself. Now, Mm -hmm. your elephant with a pink string would be different than mine and anybody else's. So there's also this, there's a uniqueness to it as well as a commonality. Mm. But you're curing the image in your mind's eye. That's so interesting, which is often why, I don't know, I'll speak for just myself, very often when a book is transformed into a movie, it's pretty disappointing. Right. No, no, no. That's not the way she's supposed to look, or that's not exactly (laughs) right. Yeah. I don't know if there's an answer to this, but why does it become so immediate? Because it's on all three levels. How does that work? 
Well, again, you know, we can only surmise one of the things that now we have neuroscience, right? So for years, I would use story to help my clients understand difficult concepts. And I could always tell when they would get it because I would see what I called the lights going off in someone's eyes. I would see the, and now of course with neuroscience, they have instruments where they can start measuring everything that's going on in the brain and what they've discovered Wow. When we have those aha moments, there's a part above our right ear. It's called the anterior superior temporal gyrus. It's in a fold in the brain. And what it does is it shoots out a blast of gamma waves, which is the highest electrical frequency in the brain. And that creates new neural pathways. That's cool. (laughs) We change our brains, actually, when we have those moments. That is so cool. So you're saying because of all the instruments measuring neuroscience, whatever's going on in the brain can be seen. And that's sort of what we've found when people get to this moment, things clicking via story or otherwise. Right, right. I think it's pretty cool though to now they can measure what's going on because I'm curious. I want to (laughs) know. Yeah, no, I I mean, I love neuroscience. I think a lot of people listening are very into it. Whether or not we understand all the jargon is a little irrelevant. <laughs> but I think it it also, because very often, I think psychology and emotions can feel so vague. Uh-huh. And with neuroscience, perhaps because it's more medical or measurable or you can see it, it just, it sort of solidifies it. And it definitely does make it more real or understandable. Yeah, because we can actually see the effects. So, for example, when Romeo says, Juliet is the sun. Now, if we use the left side of our brain and we're going to try to figure out everything that Juliet and the sun have in common, well, we know he's not saying she's a flaming ball of hydrogen, right? Right. And if we looked at all the qualities, the left hemisphere of our brain is not going to help us very well. But what can happen, and they've done studies where they show that we get frustrated because we mostly use that part of our brain. But if we can shift over into the right side of our brain, that's the part that can see things that on the surface appear to be disconnected. And so using the right side of our brain, we can go, oh, get it. What Shakespeare is saying is she lights up his world. Now, Mm -hmm whole different feeling state also that gets activated, right? She lights up his world. We can almost feel what his love feels like. So that's the power of the metaphor that's used in story. It takes us right there. What about a story engages that very long four word name term? What did you call it? Anterior? Superior temporal gyrus. Yeah, that thing. <laughs> Well, what they've noticed, first of all, you need a a bit of a steady hum of alpha waves start to shoot through. So that's what we feel when we start listening to a story, right? We kind of, when we get pulled into it, it's a alert but relaxed state. Mm -hmm. When you see these unexpected connections, these aha moments, that's what triggers that part of our brain to release the gamma waves. What is that part of the brain normally associated with, or is it just that? That's all I know about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess it does, and it's off time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to understand perhaps what would engage a certain part of our brain that is not normally 
engaged in this way. And I think it's sort of when we speak to someone and they say, logically, I understand this, but it's not clicking. And it sounds like a vehicle that we can use as storytelling, but the why perhaps is sort of still kind of an enigma. It is the imaginative realm of our psyche, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a bit of a mystery. How can we imagine? We don't really know, but we know we can. And that's why when a story is boring, which is usually what a narrative is, and someone's just going on and on and on, what's not clicking is we're not picturing what they're talking about. It's just words. Yeah. So this is totally off topic, but I'm just curious, is there a way that you can make it more compelling? when you take it from a narrative to a story? Yes. I think, first of all, one of the things, well, one of the things shamans knew from the get-go was there's a certain rhythm, there's a certain cadence that we tend to attune to. So when you hear poetry rather than read it, you feel that kind of cadence that really can pull you in. There's also the beginning, the middle, and the end. There's often conflict that gets Mm -hmm. resolved. And there's emotion that gets evoked, which is why these old fairy tales, I mean, think about, they've lasted for thousands of years. Beauty and the Beast, 6,000 years old. Really? Right? They've done studies with the the way they can study language to just to trace far back. That's how all that, and I mean, so why is that story sticking around? (laughs) Wow. It's kind of wild. It's really interesting. Yeah. I think also, and I'm just thinking about uh, when I read that a lot of this, when it's done well, it's done implicitly. They're not telling you what to feel. They're not telling you that it's going on. It just happens. And then your experience is so it's immersed. Right. Because it evokes that, again, that imaginative realm. Again, Shakespeare was brilliant at it. Why did Shakespeare say out, out, brief candle instead of, and then she died? (laughs) right that's right and that's what we love in a good story if we're reading along it's like we're just getting carried along with it because we are interacting we're not totally passive yeah oh this is so interesting so even just to bring it back to and we kind of are talking about recovery and eating disorders perhaps maybe a tad (laughs) (laughs) how do you start to use uh, storytelling and the use of metaphors even just with the idea of recovery in general? Well, for example, let's say I have a client who's an adolescent whose mother dragged her into treatment and doesn't want to be there, right? We've all had that experience, you know, arms crossed on yes, no answers. And so I might say something like, well, you know, we're going to be here a while. Your mom dropped you off. You want to hear a story? And this is not, of course, what they're expecting. So it's a little disarming. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, you know, let me just tell you the story. I don't know if you heard the story about the these goddesses. There was this goddess called Demeter, and she was the mother goddess, and she was the goddess of the harvest, and she had a daughter, Persephone, and they were super, super close. They went everywhere together. And then one day they were out in this meadow, and they were picking flowers, and just as Persephone was reaching for a narcissist flower, her mother had turned her back, the earth opened up and up came Hades with his chariot of black horses. He snatched Persephone, took her to the underworld. The earth closed. Demetra turns around and she went, where's Persephone? She's gone. Where could she have gone? And in her panic, she went to all the different gods and goddesses and no one wanted to get involved. And even Zeus, 
who was the king of the gods. He knew what had happened, but he he just couldn't be bothered. And so eventually Demeter, she got so depressed that she kind of went on strike. And what that meant is that all the mortals were starving because there were no grains that were being produced, no fruit on the trees. Everyone was dying. So Zeus decides to get involved. And he says, okay, okay, okay. I know where Persephone is. She's in the underworld. And and as long as she hasn't eaten anything, she can be returned. No problem. Well, Hades gave Persephone some pomegranate seeds, which she ate. So when she was reunited with her mother, she that meant she could only stay for a while. And from time to time, she would have to go back to the underworld. But of course, when her mother and her greets her and they're hugging and kissing and her mom says, what did you eat? She's thinking, oh my God, I've been in the underworld and you just want to know what I ate? Because she didn't know that that meant that she was going to have to return to the underworld from time to time. So I might tell a story like this. And then I might say, yeah, your dad was kind of like Zeus, right? He he didn't want to get involved until things were looking pretty, pretty tough. Or I would find something about it to see what she could relate to. So often with eating disorders, speaking too directly about the eating behaviors is going to close a lot of doors. But if you come in with a story, the doors start to open. First of all, I find myself like sitting at the edge of my seat. What's going to happen in this story? And I'm so not like a tell me story kind of person. Um, I'm just it's so funny. But I guess you're saying that in this example, it's literally telling a story to draw the person into a conversation. Right. Because these stories are not true on the outside, which is why they're called myths, but they are true on the inside. Mm. All of us know what it's like to get dragged into the underworld, right? Whether it's through depression or addiction or trauma, we know what it's like to get dragged down there. So it's tapping into that aspect of ourselves and that want to find out how, how do we get out and what, what happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mind is wandering. I'm like, oh, which part stands out to me most about the story? See how compelling it is. <laughs> and that's exactly what it does. Yeah. That's so interesting. But there's also something I'm curious if you would share it just because I love this particular metaphor that you use. I think there is one about a log or the water or something. Can you share that? Just even just understanding recovery decisions and ambivalence in general. It's my favorite metaphor because I hear from people all over the world that say this metaphor transformed their understanding of their eating disorder. So I went, okay, now that's my... Guys, hold on to your hats here. Let's go. time that I had a woman in session with me and I was trying to explain to her some things and what the recovery process was going to look like. So here we go. Notice we begin with the imagination. Imagine. Mm. Imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip, you fall in, you're drowning. You're getting pulled on through the rapids and along comes a big log and you grab on and the log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there, you can see the riverbanks. You can't get there because you're holding so tight to the log. So The irony is now the very thing that just saved your life is getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. And to make things more complicated, there's always someone on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an (laughs) absolute idiot because you can't let go of that log. 
Well, the way I see it is letting go of that log may not be the very best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of the log, start to swim to shore because that person is the person who loves you more than life itself, or that person is the top specialist in the country. And you get halfway there and realize, oh, shoot, I don't have the strength to make it. Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either, and you're really sunk. Mm-hmm. So I believe we have a wise part of ourselves that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. So what do you do instead? Well, you let go of the log and you try floating. And when you start to sink, grab back on. Then you let go of the log and you practice treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you swim around it once and grab back on, twice, grab back on, 10 times, 100 times, 200 times, whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore. Then you let go of the log. So with this metaphor, without talking about eating disorders at all, I'm presenting the idea that the disordered eating has served a function and a very important function, and it would behoove you to figure out what that function is, because that's going to let you know what the skills are that you need to develop. So I pack all of that into that little story as a, I mean, there's a lot of different directions to go with it after that. Yeah. Well, I think part of the beauty of that story is that it's, it can become so individualized after that. What does the log mean to you? What is the treading water? What is the floating? Mm -hmm. What is the swimming? And all of that is is open to interpretation. Exactly. And that's why everyone's recovery gets to be their own, not my idea of what it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I love that metaphor every single time. <laughs> um, I wonder if we can take it to even more specific parts of eating disorders and disordered eating. So we're talking about drawing somebody in or recovery in general making difficult choices. But what about, um, you know, behavior specific to eating disorders, like uh, maybe the general restricting patterns or binging or purging or exercise? Is there a way to attribute metaphors to those individually as well? Yeah, because it comes from trying to find the meaning of it all. So it started for me many, many years ago when I was a young graduate student and I walked into my first class and there was a little old man at the front talking and he was speaking in a pretty thick accent that I really couldn't understand. So I had to really concentrate and tell myself, okay, he's speaking English and he's, you can get this. And that man happened to be Victor Frankl. And I had no idea how wow. at the time. Right? And for those that don't know, he he wrote Man's Search for Meaning out of his experience in the Nazi prison camps during World War II, where what he discovered is that you can strip someone of everything, everything they've ever held dear, but there's one thing you can't take away from them, and that is the meaning they give to their experience, and therein lies their freedom. So him as my teacher launched me on this path of, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? How do I get to the meaning? And that's been pretty much my my work. So when I started looking at patterns with eating disorders, I started to see, oh, okay, it's the patterns itself that can reveal more of what's going on and the meaning beneath that's, that's more subterranean beneath the symptomology. So, for example, someone who restricts their food, struggling with anorexia, let's say, 
that's not the only thing they restrict in their life. They, they might restrict new experiences. They might restrict their emotions. They might restrict intimacy. They might restrict their sexuality. They might be putting themselves on restriction when they don't do something perfectly. So you'll see this theme of restriction like everywhere. Of course, the one that gets your attention is the food restriction because it can be life-threatening. But that doesn't mean there's not this bigger, broader pattern. And someone who struggles with binge eating, what you're going to find in terms of a pattern is this whole scarcity. It's not just that there's not enough food, but there's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough appreciation or they're not enough. And so you you can start to see this pattern everywhere. And someone who struggles with bulimia, for example, and they're binging and purging, you're going to find that pattern of taking on or taking in too much too quickly and not being able to assimilate. So they might, they might sign up for a gazillion courses, get overwhelmed and then drop out of school. Or they might mm-hmm. um, meet someone, fall madly in love immediately. And then as soon as there's a conflict, they're out of there. Or they might um, have a, a, all these projects that they they start, and but it gets to be too much, so they drop them all. Or they might uh, meet a, someone who becomes their best, 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 best friend. And as soon as they see a flaw, oh, I can't be with that person. So you see this pattern everywhere in their lives. And the the cool thing about working with the pattern is that when you start to resolve it in one area, it affects another area. So if you're addressing the eating issues, it'll help with the other areas and addressing the other areas help with the eating issues. How does that happen? How does it happen? I'm not sure because you're you're really going direct to the pattern itself Mm -hmm. rather And you're working with the specific behaviors, but it's a much broader sweep. And often, you know, I would make those connections for someone if they can't see them, because typically someone who has an eating disorder often will say, well, everything is, my life is fine. I've just got this eating disorder thing as though it's got its own separate orbit, as though there's Mm -hmm. no connection between that and the rest of their lives. And honestly, the recovery lies in discovering that connection so that you can disconnect. Yeah. Well, I guess then my question is, once you make those connections, then what do you do with it? Or is that just individual and it's not really a question for the general masses? I don't like what happens with the stories. You start to see it, right? what What you're actually doing is you're taking what has been unconscious and you're bringing it into the light of consciousness where you have choice. So when it's mm-hmm. unconscious, you have no choice. It's like going down a hill uh, in the trunk of a car and you're going down this twisty, windy road and you're getting tossed around as compared to being behind the wheel. Now you're still going down that road, but you have some agency. You have some choices to whether where you're going to speed up, where you're going to slow down, how tight you're going to take the turns, when you're going to put on the brakes. So by bringing the pattern into conscious awareness, what you're doing is you're providing for choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that ultimately so many of the conversations that we've had on this podcast and will continue to have is the idea of making what's outside of our awareness into our awareness to unconscious conscious, and then Mm -hmm. allowing us to make choice, which might seem so simple and it's not a magical toolbox and it's not a list of five things that you need to do to change your life, but ends up being pretty much the key. Absolutely. And there are skills involved, like, you know, with the log story, there are, you know, there's skills that you need to learn. Sure. Uh, 
And for recovery from an eating disorder, you need to cultivate emotional literacy and also media literacy. Understand, you know, what's coming at you from the culture at large and bring that into your conscious awareness. And also interoceptive awareness is an important skill, the ability to read the signals from inside your body, which gets you back in your body rather than looking at it from the outside in. And then I think the most single-handedly, the most important skill, because I've seen thousands of people totally, completely recover from eating disorders, recovered, period, no thoughts, no nothing, but not without the skill of assertive communication. That Mm -hmm. seems to be the most essential. Yeah. That is true, sadly, for some people who don't want to admit it. <laughs> it's it's so, so hard to do. It's a skill. It's a language that, you know, it's typically not taught in our families and it's really not taught in school. I mean, if I had my way, it'd be taught in every school in the country. But that learning to communicate in that way can be so freeing. And again, if someone is using an eating disorder to express their feelings unconsciously and they become aware of what they are and then they develop the skill of communicating them clearly, kindly, and honestly, then you've put the eating disorder out of a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the log doesn't serve its function anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm curious if there potentially could be a separate category, even if you think about this on a whim, for someone who uses exercise, or is that sort of sometimes within the category of purging, if there's another way to think about exercise metaphorically? Well, there are other, and there's exercise addiction. There's also exercise resistance, which is as real a thing as an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it, so with like someone is running, oh, what are they running from, right? You start to look metaphorically or, you know, if they're counting the reps and the speed and the distance, okay, what's that about, right? So for me, yeah, that is definitely a form of an eating disorder. And then you need to drop into, well, what is that all about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sort of makes me think about how we have, we try to have different conversations around body image and not just it. There are, like you're saying, skills to implement with body image and maybe new information to integrate, but also the deeper meaning or the metaphor of body image. What is it like to take up more space, to take up less space and, and all of those questions that can point to these patterns that you were alluding to. I mean, it's it's very telling because then you're going to get to, you're going to drop down into what the deeper issues are just by listening to the language. So even the very foods that someone struggles with is embedded metaphorically. It's encoded with what the struggles are. And so if you learn to look at them through the lens of metaphor, it's pretty revealing. And when the clients get it, they usually laugh. And I always wondered about that because it's funny. But what what I realize is when something is enlightening, it's not simply in terms of illumination, but also levity. You do lighten up. Mm-hmm. That's true. Can you give me an example about the foods that people struggle with? So the way I like to explain it, again, using imagination, <laughs> imagine two tanks, tank A, tank B, fancy names. And tank A is the tank we fill. <laughs> physical nourishment. We fill it with food. Tank B is the tank we fill when we need emotional or spiritual nourishment. 
We fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, meditation, prayer, and so on. But what can happen for someone, say they're struggling with compulsive eating, is that they go to fill tank A, and before they know it, tank A is full and overflowing, but they're still hungry. Why? Because it's tank B that needs to be filled. And so what has to happen is you have to untangle the two tanks so that you can tell the difference. And that's where the skill of interoceptive awareness comes in, where you really learn the physical sensations in your body of hunger and fullness. Like, I feel like pizza is not a sensation, right? So really learning what those sensations are for them is how you you can rule it out. So let's say you're re- reaching for the pizza, you check in, not a hunger signal in sight, but you still want to eat that pizza. Well, now you've tumbled down Alice in Wonderland a rabbit hole and you've landed smack dab in the world of metaphor because in tank B, pizza's not pizza. Food isn't food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and probably don't even know about because it's coded. So you have to crack the code. And it's different for everyone, but I have people start with it just a simple way of doing that. And then they can take it from there. But typically, sweet foods have to do with feeling like there's not enough sweetness in your life, or you're not sweet enough. Think of the way we use the word sweet, like oh, that's so sweet, or she's really a sweetheart, or whoa, sweet, or I'm looking for the sweet spot. So we use that word in many other ways. It's going to tell you something. Crunchy, salty foods typically are associated with unexpressed anger and frustration. Just think about, you want to bite someone's head off, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Warm foods are often associated with a craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods, whether it's a fear of or a urge for, usually has to do with excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate, we know this from Valentine's Day, right? Love, Mm -hmm. sensuality, sexuality, romance. And so when you can start to break it down and look at the very foods metaphorically, it's going to tell you. Here's an example. I was working with someone struggling with bulimia. And I said, okay, if there was one food that you wished you could eat, there would be, and there would be no consequences, no consequences whatsoever. What would that food be? And she said, oh, it'd be vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. And I said, all right, I want you to imagine I've never had vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. And you're going to tell me what's so wonderful. And she said, well, it's sweet, it's smooth, and it's refreshing. Now, when we took a look at her, what was going on at that time in her life, her boyfriend was accusing her of not being sweet enough. She'd hit a really rough patch with her parents that she was desperately wanting to smooth out. And she was in a dead end job in need of a refreshing change. There was our work. (laughs) Cool. Is it always that simple or is it this is the package in the perfect bow? (laughs) I have to listen with my inner Mm -hmm. ear. I'm listening to where the energy is. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm, I'm just kind of scanning for what those connections might be. Sometimes it's in the language of the foods itself. So here's an example of that. I was working with a 
woman, she was an emergency room physician and she was struggling with binge eating and she came in to see me and she was so upset with herself and just beating herself up for what she had done. I said, wow, what did you do? And she said, well, last night I got off of work and I came home and I fixed some chicken tenders for dinner for my husband and myself. And before he got home, I ate them all myself. I'm so ashamed. And she started going into that. I said, whoa, 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 let's just see if we can trace this. So what were you? You were working like a, what was it, 12, 14 hour shift in the ER? And she said, yeah. I said, tending to all kinds of physical and emotional trauma. And she said, yeah. And I said, so what do you think you really wanted? And she said, a hug. I said, yeah, you wanted some TLC, some tender loving care. And instead you ate the chicken tenders. Now, because this was on target, I saw the light go off in her eyes and she laughed. Now, this woman will never be able to eat chicken tenders again if she's not hungry without asking herself first, do I need a hug? Huh. So it's in the language sometimes. Oh, I love that. Which also, this is a great conversation to listen to and start to think about this for oneself, but also seems to require a therapist for us to listen, to get that language. It's almost not so, it's not so easy to do it on your own. It's not, but if any of your listeners would like, they can go to lightofthemooncafe.com, download a PDF called Food and Metaphors, and there's even a little activity to walk you through it so that, yeah, no, you can make a lot of headway in just working with these categories and seeing what they mean to you and how they're connected to what's going on with you and food. Look at that, a little DIY. Mm-hmm. Finally, I so often say, well, it's time to go to therapy, but this is probably very refreshing just to be able to hear. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, Before I let you go, there was one other metaphor I think you shared previously. And I think it was very helpful to think about different types of people and different types of journeys. I think it was about the train where we were talking about some people who perhaps stop their quote recovery at a certain point, they don't go any further, but they're still pretty immersed in food decisions. And I wonder if you can just share that briefly with us before we end. Because I think what's really important is that you replace as much as possible the self-loathing and the criticism, curiosity. And so the metaphor I like to use for the recovery journey, and I actually don't even know that I really like that word recovery because it sounds like you're going back and and getting something. I I think a better word is transformation because that's essentially Oh, I like that. Someone who recovers from an eating disorder, they step into a life that's beyond their wildest dreams that they'd never even imagined. Mm -hmm. But with the train metaphor, it's like you can get on the train and you can choose to get off at the first station station where you're symptom-free in terms of behaviors, but maybe you're still obsessing. And I think that's perfectly fine, but people need to know that if you stay on the train, there are other stops down the road. So what people need to know is that they can stay on the train for as long as they like. And at the end, Total, complete recovery is possible. Yeah, I, I love that one. It puts into you know great perspective. It's it's also totally fine to get off the train whenever you're ready to get off the train, mm-hmm. um, and that's not for anybody else to decide. Exactly, it's for you to decide. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. This was so wonderful. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Well, you can find me at lightofthemooncafe.com. And I have a lot of resources there. You can also find me at dranitajohnston.com or through my residential eating disorder program in Hawaii, ipono.com. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.